Great, thanks, Ellen. Thanks, Molly, Mandy, Millie. That's going to stick, Calvin. That's going to stick. <laughs> so there are certain celebrity faces that I'm guessing are familiar to most people, even those who watch little or no television. Um, but I'm going to want to put my theory to the test this morning. Um, and I've, I've got, I think I've got permission to do what I'm about to ask, because Victoria said... It's good to go sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. So I'm going to ask you to stand up, if you wouldn't mind, on the basis of what Victoria said earlier. And if you've got a problem with that, talk to Victoria. Don't blame me, I'm just the messenger. So I'm going to show four celebrity faces. And if you don't know the celebrity face as it's revealed, then I'd like you to sit down, please. So are you ready? It's a tough one to start with. Looking round, I'm looking round. That's probably just as well. Good, good, because if you, if you didn't know this masked person, I'd be not only asking you to take a seat, but to come forth for prayer at the end. Um, this is, of course, Boris Johnson, who occupies some central role in government. Is that, is that right? Apparently, something like that. Anyway, that's Boris Johnson. Okay, that was a nice, easy one to, to start off with. Now, we possibly might lose some of the older generation with this one. Possibly, let's see. Sit down if you don't know who this is. Oh, oh, quite a few have gone down there. That's really interesting. I wasn't expecting that. Well, um, so yes, be fearless and take your seat if you don't recognise the face of Taylor Swift. Sold, sold more than 200 million records worldwide. So she's pretty well known. Wow, so few standing. I'm, I'm astonished. Right, um, Possibly might lose some of the younger generation, possibly, with this one, unless you're familiar with a certain film franchise. Oh, no, no, you can... No, 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 you can't stand up again. <laughs> well, I don't... Anyone, anyone sat down there? That's, that's remarkable. Well, yes, one of our national treasures, Dame Judi Dench. Brilliant. And lastly, this one here... No one sitting, oh, one, one sitting down, maybe because you don't recognise him, maybe just because he's in disgust, I don't know. Uh, this is the person who said, if your lifeguard duties were as good as your singing, a lot of people would be drowning. <laughs> no, it wasn't Calvin, this was uh, Simon Cowell, a.k.a. Mr Nasty. Thank you very much, please, please take a seat. Now, um, I'm not a particular fan of Simon Cowell, to be honest, but some years ago, the BBC Newsbeat carried a story about him. At the time, he was earning an estimated £22 million a year. And he was shown footage on, of a family on the Oprah Winfrey, uh, Oprah Winfrey TV chat show. Two parents were struggling to pay off a mortgage debt of £80,000. They had to travel 100 miles each day uh, for cancer treatment for their daughter, Madeline. And Simon Cowell wrote them a cheque to pay off their mortgage. Now, it was a drop in the ocean for Simon Cowell, so just, just to put this in perspective, if you were earning £22,000 a year, as opposed to £22 million, it would be like giving away £80. So, you know, I'm not holding him up as a 
an example of great generosity. However, what he said afterwards was quite interesting, I thought. He said, it's taken me 48 years. I credit you with this. I never knew doing good could feel so good. Simon Cowell was surprised by the benefits of giving. And we might be surprised that he gave anything in the first place. But we should be even more surprised if coming to this for the first time about the extraordinary statement that we're looking at this morning, that God gave his one and only son. We're spending four weeks taking a closer look at this most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And some of you may be thinking, well, I know this already. You know, I've been able to quote John 3.16 since I was in Sunday school. The words of John 3.16 were the first words I ever spoke. You know, that kind of thing. So familiar to us. So I need to remind you of Aesop's fable of the fox and the lion. So the fox, if you remember, had never seen a lion before, and the first time the fox saw the lion, he was scared witless. The second time he saw the lion, he was scared a little less. The third, a little less more, until eventually the lion became familiar to him, and he wasn't frightened at all. And so it is, Aesop concluded, that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. Well, John 3.16 isn't frightening, far from it, but familiarity with it can be extremely damaging to us. It can just wash over us. We miss how powerful these words really are. Ellen spoke about God's love for the world last week. This week, we see exactly what form that love takes. God gave his one and only son. And we're going to spend a bit of time unpacking that phrase, but before we do, a quick word about the series, So Loved. So we're taking the title and the design from this book by a guy called Martin Salter. It's excellent for exploring faith. It's simply written, but well-written, great to give, um, to give away to someone or to read for yourself, maybe. There are a few left on the welcome desk um, just around the corner. We're getting some more info next week. They went like hotcakes last week. Um, we're suggesting five pounds. If, if money is a problem, then just take one. That's, that's, that's not an issue. But it's a great resource for yourself or someone else you might know. So, what form does God's love take? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the gift was a gracious gift. A gracious gift. Quoting from Martin Salter's book, he makes the following observation. In the cultures of ancient Greece and Rome, gift-giving always came with strings attached. The ancient writer Seneca wrote a best-selling page-turner about the social rules around the giving and receiving of gifts. People maintained or improved their social status with a complex set of reciprocal arrangements. A wealthy or influential Roman citizen might provide legal help and protection to certain members of the lower classes, and in return, the latter would provide support for his political campaign. This was called a patron-client relationship. The more clients a patron had, 
the more important he was considered to be. The clients would provide the patron with an entourage as he wandered around the city every morning, thereby demonstrating his social importance. And in return, the client might be rewarded with some food for his family or could even be invited to dinner with a patron, but only to make up the numbers. The clients would be seated in the less honourable seats and given cheap wine. Sometimes they were there to be the butt of jokes. So that's the context into which we read John 3.16. And this is one of the things that I think is astounding about the verse. is There's no hint of a reciprocal arrangement. There's no suggestion that God gives with strings attached. It's a gracious gift, a gift of grace, a gift of unmerited favour. It's like the generosity attributed to Alexander the Great. So the story is told that one day a beggar by the roadside uh, asked him for alms as as Alexander was passing by. So the man was poor, he had no claims on Alexander at all, not even the right really to raise his hand for help. And yet the emperor threw down some gold coins and a courtier was astonished at what Alexander had done and said, Sir, copper coins would adequately meet a beggar's need. Why give him gold? And Alexander responded, Copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. The beggar can't reciprocate. He can't pay back. He can simply be the recipient of Alexander's generosity, and so it is with God. We can't pay him back. We can simply be the recipients of his generosity. We are, as we occasionally sing, uh, beggars on the receiving end of a gracious gift. So it's a gracious gift, and it's also a, a costly gift. So Simon Cowell's £80,000 cheque wasn't costly to him. It would be to most of us. Um, It would be a sacrifice to us to write such a cheque, even if that was possible. But God's gift of his son was costly because it was a sacrificial gift in at least two ways. So firstly, it was sacrificial because in giving his son, he was giving himself Everything else God had to give, he made. And what's more, he made it with a word. Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke again, and there was sky. He spoke again, and there was ground, and so on. It wouldn't have been costly for God to give what he had made. It only cost him a word. But he didn't give what he made He gave his very own son. And then secondly, the gift was costly because in giving his son, God was giving everything. It was his one and only son. Now you can buy a Mona Lisa if you want to. You can buy a canvas, you can buy a postcard, you can buy a print. You might spend £1.50, you might spend £150, who knows. But the point is, 
There's only one original Mona Lisa. There's a one and only Mona Lisa. It's apparently worth more than £625 million, probably outside our budget. And were the Louvre Museum to give that away, it would be a truly costly gift because there's only one. Now, that's out of our budget. There are some costly gifts that might be within our budget. So, for example, um, you might wander around Hamleys, for example, um, and come across one of these. Lego Millennium Falcon. Who would like a Lego Millennium Falcon? One, two, three. There's a few out there. Was that your hand raised, Ellen? Oh, you've got one. Okay. <laughs> Just shut your ears this next bit. Okay. <laughs> so it's a lovely gift for someone. Who would like to buy Amber, for example, who put her hand up a moment ago? Who would like to buy Amber a Millennium Falcon? Who would like to... to who would like to spend £650 to give Amber a Millennium Falcon? No one. No. Small one. Ah, oh, very good, very good, very good. Phew. What about this, um, this rocking zebra? Who would like this rocking zebra? Come on, be honest. It's an, yeah, it's a nice piece. It's a nice piece. Who would like to buy my friend at the back this ro rocking zebra? Yeah, the same friend. <laughs> it's only going to cost you £129,000, my friend. Because apparently it's covered with more than 80,000 hand-placed Swarovski crystals, which may explain the price. But for £129,000 and some wrapping paper, that's a lovely gift. That's a lovely gift. Now, why would someone give the gift of a rocking zebra that costs that much money? Because they can, because it's an investment, because they've got nothing else to do with their money, because no one else has got one to impress someone. I have no idea. I have no idea why someone would spend that much money to give the gift of a zebra, even a rocking zebra. Why would God give the costly gift of his son? What was his motive? Well, we heard the answer to that last week. For God so loved the world that he gave. And what was his purpose? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. Moved by love, God has given the costliest of gifts that we might have eternal life. So it's a gracious gift, it's a costly gift, and then thirdly and finally, it's a perfect gift. Excuse me a moment. Now, to be God's son in the Bible can mean different things. I want to take you on a mini Bible study for a moment. I hope that's okay. So first of all, to be God's son can simply refer to being God's offspring. Luke writes in chapter 3 of his gospel that when Jesus began his work, he was about 30 years old. He was the son, so people thought, of Joseph, who was the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, dot, 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 lots of names, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, 
the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam was God's son because he originated from God. He was created in God's image to reflect God's glory. Interestingly, Paul says in his letters that Jesus came as the last Adam, the perfect expression of God's nature. So secondly, to be God's son can refer to being God's people. I, the Lord, say Israel is my firstborn son. That comes in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. So God chose a people for himself and adopted that people as his firstborn son, his preeminent son. Interestingly, again, Matthew identifies Jesus as the true Israel when he quotes Hosea 11 in Matthew 2. You don't have to follow all of this, but you might recognize the phrase, out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus is the perfect expression of Israel. Thirdly, God's son can refer to God's king. So God promised Israel's David that his son would sit on an eternal throne. I will be his father and he will be my son, God says. David, writing Psalm 2, has God saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You are my son today. I have become your father. Interestingly, again, the New Testament applies these words to Jesus. So Jesus embodies the perfect Adam, the perfect Israel, the perfect king, all three meanings of sonship. But most importantly, he embodies God himself. John writes that they tried to kill Jesus because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And in, his, in the famous introduction to his gospel, he writes of Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So all things come together perfectly in Jesus Christ. And that's why he is the perfect gift the perfect gift for all of us. A couple of weeks' time, it'll be Mothering Sunday, and the advertising juggernaut is in full flow, telling us what the perfect gift for uh, your mother is. So it could be an espresso coffee machine, Pandora jewellery, the Liberty Beauty Kit, afternoon tea in the Hilton as examples. And maybe that would be, for someone here, the perfect Mothering Sunday gift. Who knows? But the point about God's perfect gift is that it's a perfect gift for everyone because all things come together perfectly in him. Now, we're going to say more about this in the coming weeks. But I want to offer you some thoughts this morning in addition to what we will be exploring next in the series, why Jesus is the perfect gift. Hopefully you can take away one or more of these and there will be a help to you. So, first of all, he's the perfect friend. 
always available, even at the most unreasonable of hours. It doesn't judge you. It doesn't let you down. It doesn't make fun of you. It doesn't exclude you. He's there for you, the perfect friend. Jesus is the perfect guide. He knows what's best. He can see the future just as clearly as the past. He knows when to prompt you and when to let you work things out for yourself. He gives you space to make your choices. He doesn't criticize you when you make mistakes. Jesus is the perfect coach. He wants what's best for you. He wants to bring the best out of you. But he won't push you too hard. He knows what you're capable of. He believes in you and will inspire you to give your best. Jesus is the perfect sounding board. Do you ever need to let off steam? Do you need someone to express your frustration to? I've been doing quite a lot of that over the last year because of family circumstances. Do you need someone to share thoughts with that you daren't share anywhere else yet? Jesus is there for you. And one last example. Jesus is the perfect fellow sufferer. He knows what it's like to hurt deeply. He gets it. He really understands how much pain you're in and he suffers with you. He knows when to be silent. He knows how to comfort. Jesus is all this and much more. The much more is what we will see in the coming weeks, but I hope you can see or are beginning to see or at least are open to seeing that Jesus is the most gracious, the most costly, the most perfect gift that God could possibly have given. Amen.